We've said before that Jesus' strongest rebukes were not to the sinners and the people that knew that they needed help. His strongest rebukes were to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Uh, if you didn't see that today or if you didn't hear that before today, you certainly will now. Um, I want us to notice something, though, before we get into 23. This is, and I'm going to use the word, a scathing rebuke. You guys know what I mean when I say that, right? Like, uh, Jesus is pulling no punches, um, but he's giving this scathing rebuke against the Pharisees immediately after what we talked about last week, his claim to deity, right? So he has said, he has established now, I am the Messiah. That's what we talked about last week. The end of 22, chapter 22, he made that very clear, talking about who the son of David is, the Lord of my Lord. He said, I am the Messiah. And now, using that authority, he is sharing these things with the religious people of the day. Um, this is, it, it, let me put it this way. If Jesus asks a question, which he did last week, if he asks this question, we should have an answer. And if he says something about you, you should take it to heart. Right? Imagine your best friend for a second. They come to you and they say, hey, I love you so much. And you say, I know you love me. You've proved it in these the, all these ways. And they said, yeah, I love you. Here's something that's going on that I think is a problem in your life. Now, that's not a pleasant thing situation to happen. And yet, every one of us, if we're real honest, would be thankful that someone who loved us pointed out our flaws rather than someone who wanted to exploit them and make us look bad. So when Jesus says, hey, here is a problem, you guys, we should take it seriously. And he did that very definitely in chapter 23 here. This is a difficult text. Uh, there was a, a few more difficult texts that we've already looked at. This is difficult not because it's a challenge to interpret, but because it is especially convicting, especially piercing. Um, how many of you guys, I realize this is just at the beginning of winter, but how many of you enjoy spring cleaning? Are there any of you out there? I see a few strange individuals who like spring cleaning. No, my wife was one of them. I don't, I don't know if she likes it, but she likes the effect of it, you know, getting the stuff out and getting it done and having that behind you. Um, I, I certainly don't care for spring cleaning myself, but it's an important time of the year where you kind of pull things out, right? We've sort of stockpiled over the winter and um, we've, we pull things out. We take stock of what we have. We evaluate what we need going forward. And then what do we do with the rest? We give it away. We throw it away. We, we move it out. Um, this is, again, this is not a pleasant process for most of us, but I would argue that it is a necessary process. Have any of you guys ever uh, tried to to clear a path in the trees? Walt Gilbert isn't here. Uh, Walt, um, he would clear paths for Jeep, I forget what they're called, Jeep trails. He would clear Jeep trails um, all the time. When I was a kid, my family got a go-kart for Christmas. 
four kids. I think I was like eight or nine. And for an eight or nine year old boy, that is like winning the lottery, man. We got a go-kart. It wasn't just one of these you know, little asphalt go-karts. It had the big mud tires on the back, you know, and we figured out a way pretty quick to, to turn the governor off. So we'd go a little faster. Um, but we got, we got this, uh, this go-kart and I was blessed to live with my parents on 11 wooded acres. And so I spent tons of time, uh, during the spring and summer outside with my axe clearing trails for go-karts. Uh, I found a lot of joy in that out in nature, you know, figuring out which ways to go, what I could fit through all of those sorts of things. And, uh, you know, I realized pretty quick that cutting down the tree wasn't always the hardest part. You know, you could lay into it, you know, with the axe and after a few minutes, you'd be, you'd have the tree down. But what was harder than that? Getting the stump up, right? Because you can't go roaring through there with these big mud tires and a bunch of stumps because it's going to pop it. And so I quickly found out that the most difficult part of clearing a trail was getting the stumps out. You know, you'd have to dig the dirt out and you'd have to whack at the roots. You have to dig some more and whack and pull and dig and pull and, and all of these things. And it was, that was the best part of it. Um, but it had to be done so that you didn't pop the tires going through the, the trails. Jeremiah and Hosea use farming language, and they start talking about something called uh, fallow ground. I'm going to tie these things together here in a minute. But they start talking about fallow ground. In, 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 in fact, they encourage Israel to break up their fallow ground. So we've got farmers in here. What is fallow ground? Anybody want to take a stab at it? What did you say, Debbie? It's land that's set aside. Unprepared soil. Now, sometimes farmers will intentionally set it aside. Uh, in fact, in, in Bible times, in the Old Testament, uh, they were told to do this. Every seven years, they were told to let the ground go fallow um, for two things, I think. One was to benefit the poor who would come and, and use it and benefit from it. But also, it would replenish the soil. Right, we get that. We're in a farming community. We understand that. Um, but fallow ground is in in that state. It's unusable. You can't go out on fallow ground and drop seeds in the soil and have those seeds sprout and produce a positive good crop because it's fallow. It's it's full of um, ruts. And it's full of weeds and it's full of thorns and thistles and it's just hard ground. It's dry. It's not been worked up. It's overgrown. Now, is this ground beyond repair? Is there any hope that it can be used again? No. But what needs to happen? You gotta, you gotta till it up. Right? You gotta work this ground over. Some type of tool or implement on a tractor, needs to be inserted under the surface and to pull this stuff up and to work it and turn it over and make it loose so that seeds can take root in there and survive and produce a crop. 
You've got to get down to the root of the weeds and the thorns and get those things out. And if you're doing this by hand in your garden, this is not an easy thing. This is a difficult, challenging process. This is hard work. And brothers and sisters, I would propose to you that this is what's happening in Matthew 23. This is, this is what Jesus is doing in this chapter. He is forcing spring cleaning in the lives of his hearers. Right? So they hear what Jesus says in these woes, and it's, they're forced to take the time to pull the things out that have been stocked in the basement for months, for years, for a lifetime, to pull those things out Put them in the light and evaluate whether they're good or bad, whether they keep them or get rid of them. This is what's happening. Jesus is not only cutting down the trees of idolatry in our lives, he's hacking at the stumps of sin and yanking out the roots of disobedience in the hearers. He's laying the blade to the hard ground of our hearts and plowing it into workable, tender soil once again. Like it or not, Jesus is cutting through all the clutter and all the weeds and is preparing people, you and me, who the gospel can grow in richly. But this is not a pleasant process. It's hard work. A.W. Tozer said this, In this twisted world of ours, the most important things are often the most difficult to learn. And conversely, the things that come easiest are mostly of, of little real value to us in the long haul. Well, you can, if you've lived any kind of a life, you know this to be true. The things that are hard are usually the things worth doing. It's absolutely easier to sit down and watch a two-hour movie than to spend two hours reading the Bible. But which is of greater value? It's so much easier to sleep in on a Sunday morning, to hit that snooze, to do it, to go next week. It's so much easier to sleep in rather than get up and get ready to come and worship together. But which is of greater value? It's easier to think of all the things that another person needs to do to be a better Christian than to turn the convicting light of Scripture on the dark places of our own heart but what is of greater value? Brothers and sisters, if we read Matthew 23, if we read this chapter and we refuse to allow the plow of Jesus on the fallow ground of our hearts, then we will have missed the point entirely. Don't miss the point when we get into this. Um, Shelley, you mentioned it earlier, talking about spring cleaning. How do you feel when that's done. Accomplished, right? You feel wonderful. You feel freed. My, my wife and I went through our kids' playroom a couple of weeks ago, and we, we were blessed. The home that we bought had a room that was just set up for that, and it was big, and that has turned into a problem, if you know what I mean. Um, we didn't think about it at first, but then you start putting toys and things and games and stuff, and before long... We're spending three hours with two giant trash bags going through all of this and needing multiple breaks to allow the spirit of anger to not take hold. 
huh, it was ridiculous. And so when we were done with all of these, you know, these broken toys and games with lost pieces, and we could actually see the floor, and you actually had room in the bins to put more stuff, um, there was freedom. You could breathe easier, it almost seemed, right? This is what happens when we allow that plow of Jesus to come and to, 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 to till up the fallow ground of our hearts. It's not a pleasant process, but if we let him do his work, we're going to be infinitely better in the end. There is freedom in this. There is relief in surrender. But be warned, Jesus doesn't pull any punches. And he doesn't sugarcoat things. We think at the beginning that we would rather have people do that. But in the end, it's better when people just tell us how it is. And this is what Jesus does. It's, it seems to me that oftentimes we like, we like Jesus as the meek guy who bounces the little kids on his lap and talks about the kingdom of heaven in lovely, pleasant terms. What we don't care for as much is the guy who's flipping over tables and rebuking people and cleaning house in the temple. And yet, it's a good thing that Jesus is both of these things. Because we need both of these things. Remember what we said last week. We said, Jesus may not be the man that you expect, but he's exactly the man that you need. It holds true in this too. You may not expect him to come in and clean house, but it's what you need. It's what I need. Jesus certainly doesn't sugarcoat things in Matthew 23 here. In fact, he describes the Pharisees in 11 different ways. He uses 11, 11 different terms. None of them are flattering. None of them are kind. None of them are pleasant. I'll run through them real quick. You can skim through and see them pretty quickly. He calls them hypocrites, sons of hell, blind guides, fools, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, snakes, vipers, persecutors, murderers. None of these are pleasant. None of these are positive. John MacArthur says about chapter 23, of Matthew, He says, Jesus' words in this passage fly from his lips like claps of thunder and spears of lightning. Out of his mouth on this occasion came the most fearful and dreadful statements that Jesus uttered on earth. I tend to agree. Now, it's easy to read this chapter and imagine how horrible and evil these Pharisees were. It's easy to read this chapter, to hear Jesus saying these things about these people and to cast judgment and say, I can't believe that they would act that way. What's hard is hearing these things and feeling our own hearts being operated on in the process. I want to sure that we understand something here. Um, the term Pharisee means something different to us than it did in that day. Okay. To us today, to call someone a Pharisee or this word in general just means that you're a hypocrite, you don't practice what you preach, and it's not a good thing. It's a negative term. But Pharisee in Jesus' day wasn't necessarily the same 
didn't have this same kind of connotation to it. It was the title given to people who were really devout and highly regarded as religious leaders. These guys were looked up to, these Pharisees were. Pharisee was a term of admiration more than what we have for it today. These men, think about this, these men were incredibly sincere with what they believed, with what they did. They believed that they were doing what was right and good. In fact, they really thought that they were accomplishing God's will. And this is why I think this is so devastating and sobering. You and I can genuinely believe we're doing what God has told us and still be deceived. So how do we know? How do we know if we're being deceived? How do we know what God really wants for us? How do we know if we are a practicing Pharisee or not? A good definition for Pharisee is, is this. The conviction that law-keeping is the ground for our acceptance with God or a failure to be amazed at grace. Charles Spurgeon once preached that we are all born legalists, right? We are all born legalists. We're all born believing that we can earn and deserve heaven. We're born resisting the idea of grace, mostly, I think, because of the hard things that grace says about us. Because grace says you can't do it on your own. You need someone to do it for you. So, someone who was good enough did do it for you. And that's hard for us to hear because we want to be able to pull ourselves up dust ourselves off, act right, behave properly, and earn eternity in heaven with God. To earn salvation, to earn God's favor. And grace flies in the face of that. We don't deserve this gift. It's just freely given. And so while we may all be born legalists, we are trained to be Pharisees. We are, in fact, let me read this quote. So good. Um, it's by a guy named Marshall Segal. Pharisees are legalists, he says, but not the newborn kind. They have all the same fears about grace, but they have coded their insecurities with accumulated knowledge, morality, and religion. Pharisees are legalists who are puffed up. They look educated, clean, and alive all while dying inside. The seeds of sin and death keep growing and spreading underneath the confident appearances and practices, always harder and harder to cover up. We're born legalists, but Pharisees are informed legalists. Last week, we talked about two kinds of people. A sick person who knows that they're sick and admits they need a doctor. The other kind of person were those who refused to admit they're sick and receive the help that they need. They refuse to admit that there's a problem, and so therefore they do not seek the help that they desperately need. And the Pharisees in chapter 23 of Matthew is a perfect case study, an unfortunate case study. 
People reject Jesus when they refuse to believe that they need the thing that only he can give. Luke 5, 31 and 32, Jesus says, Those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus wasn't saying he only came for the worst of the worst, the robbers and the murderers and all, and all of those people. I think I said robberers. That's not a word. Robbers and murderers. He did come for them, but not only them. Jesus was saying that he came to save people who recognize their need. Who recognize their need for him. While the Pharisees were keeping their distance and plotting to kill Jesus, it was the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners who were soaking up every minute of Jesus' short life. But Jesus' problem isn't necessarily with what the Pharisees were saying about him. Because remember, in chapter 22, verses 15 and 16, they got it right. Look back there for a second. Matthew 22, 15 and 16. They, them and the Herodians, they come to him, and they, they try to, they're trying to trap him again and flatter him with these words, but they're right. They say that Jesus is true. They say, you teach the way of God truthfully. You don't care about any man's opinion and you aren't swayed by appearances. That's exactly who Jesus is. So the problem with the Pharisees isn't necessarily what they said about Jesus. The problem is the same problem that we face today. Sin that creates works-based confidence in ourselves. We, re- we see Jesus for who he is, but it makes no difference in who we are and how we live. The sin that's within us takes root and instead gives us confidence in ourselves that then flies in the face of what grace is and does. Left unchecked, pride, greed, anger, fear, anxiety, or any other sin that might struggle with, anything like that will eventually sever the connection between our mind and our mouth and our heart. And this is what happened with the Pharisees. They said right things. They knew right things. They said right things about Jesus, but it made no difference in their heart. And sin will do that. It will sever that connection. In Mark chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and he says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Pharisees had developed ways of appearing to be godly without really desiring God in their hearts. And I fear that I am guilty of that and that you are guilty of that. I fear that we have ways of appearing godly and moral and like good Christian boys and girls. And in reality, our hearts are far from God. What the Pharisees knew about God was disconnected from how they felt about God, and so it left them even even further from God. And this is the same danger that we face. Not a danger that we know right things about God, but that it's disconnected from what we feel about Him and what we practice in our daily lives. In effect, this makes us practicing Pharisees. We may not believe it to be so, 
But if what we believe about God is not what we live, then we are practicing Pharisees. And so that's the question that I want to ask us to ask before we get into chapter 23. Are we practicing Pharisees? Are we saying, yes, I believe this about God, but then our lives say something completely different? If we refuse to believe that we could be a Pharisee, I'm afraid that we're as vulnerable as the real Pharisees who murdered Jesus are. That's our, that's the danger. And so I want us to just to just stop for a moment. And I want us to think about this. Now, in the next next week, we're going to begin looking into ways that Jesus gives us to evaluate if this is true of us or not. Are we practicing Pharisees? He gives seven woes to the Pharisees, and there's a lot in there. And despite the hard things that Jesus is going to say to us in the weeks to come in Matthew 23, we're going to talk along with it about grace. Because if we divorce one from the other, if we have all of these woes and despair and we don't couple it with grace, then that's exactly what's going to happen. We're going to despair. And we're going to cry out and not think that there's any way that God could save a horrible person like me. So we have to keep the idea of grace, the concept of grace, God's love for us, right there along with it. And so I want to use um, an illustration here. How many of you guys have ever read or said to your kids the story of the the little red hen. You guys remember remember this story? Right? This is, this is I don't I didn't look at how long when this was written, but it's been around for a long time. Um th- let me just recap and read real briefly what this is. Kids, you probably will find this familiar. There's a red hen and she was scratching in a field. She finds a grain of wheat. And she says, hey, this wheat should be planted. Who's going to plant this grain of wheat? Well, on the, this farm are a duck and a cat and a dog. And so she says, who's going to do this? Will you do it? No. Will you do it? No. Will you do it? No. Okay, then I will. So she plants the wheat. Time goes by. The wheat grows. Who's going to cut the wheat? The, the duck won't do it. The dog won't do it. The cat won't do it. So the hen does it. Well, she's cut the wheat. Who's going to thresh the wheat? Nobody else will volunteer. So the hen does it. You know the story. It goes down. She takes the wheat to the mill. She makes the wheat into flour. She makes the flour into bread. She bakes the bread. And then when it comes time to eat the bread, who's going to eat this bread with me? Well, all of a sudden, the duck and the cat and the dog are real excited to be involved in the process. And they say, I'll do it. She says, no, no. I'll do it. And she eats the bread and they don't get any. Now, this is an important story to teach our kids about hard work, cooperation. Uh, in fact, there's certain parts of the Bible that reinforce this idea. You don't eat if you don't work kind of a thing. Um, so it's good to teach our kids about hard work. They shouldn't expect, <laughs> they shouldn't expect a handout to benefit from everyone else's hard work. They should put in the hard work themselves. This is a good lesson to learn. But I wonder if it's missing something that we need to edit and adjust here a little bit. We want our kids to learn about hard work. That's good. Um, but we also want to teach our kids that the world 
is full of people who really don't deserve charity. They don't deserve kindness or help. And yet, as believers, we're called to give it to them anyway. I read a story about um, someone was talking, had a conversation with their parents, and they had seen uh, a homeless person, and they gave, they had, they had money, twenty or thirty dollars, and they gave it to this person. And this, the kid said, "Look at this person. It's obvious what they're going to go do with this money. They're probably just going to go use it for for wrong things." And the parent answered this kid, and it stuck with the kid, and that's who's retelling the story. And they said, me giving, or them using this for bad things, says a lot about their character. But me not giving, even though I have the the means to do it, says a lot about my character. Right? So it's good to teach the little red hen story to our kids, but I think we should edit it in a way that helps us remember the Great Commission. Go and teach. And there's no space in there where it says, go and teach those who aren't addicted to drugs, or go and teach those who aren't homeless, or have the means. It says, go and teach. Go and share the gospel. Make disciples. It's not dependent on whether they deserve it. And kids pick up on this real quick. I remember as a kid begging my sister, my older sister, she's a couple years older than me, I would beg her to play a game with me. And I would say, well, I'll play a game with you if you then will play a game with me. And my sister was a stinker. And so often I would play her game and then I'm done. And then we would never play my game. Um, but I remember thinking, I just, I just wanted her to kind of, it was this, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine kind of thinking, right? I'll do this for you if you do something for me. But is that the way that Jesus taught? It's not. It's not at all. I mean, we can't look to someone else to respond correctly to our good works as a basis for in those good works. We just continue in them because of the grace given us. It's not dependent on what they have done or might do for us. Think about the video that we watched from Mission Minute. Refugees. I know that there's this has been turned into a very political argument, and we're not going to get into all of that. But if God has called us to the ends of the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue, then shouldn't there be a little bit of charity and love in our conversations about that? Shouldn't we have a little bit of understanding and look at what Christ might say about these things? Because this is the model that Jesus taught. Jesus did not teach. It is not a biblical concept. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That is not a biblical concept. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. You don't expect to get anything back in return. In fact, for followers of Jesus, grace is giving without expecting anything in return. Anything. Guys, this is so hard to do. This is, dare I say, impossible to do without Christ. It is so hard to give of yourself, to give of your time. Think about a relationship that you've had where you poured time into this person and building the trust and that relationship. And then for whatever reason, it was broken and you felt stabbed in the back. You felt let down. You felt abandoned. You felt hurt. 
It is hard to love those who don't love us back. And yet that's, that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do. Because, see, grace doesn't expect anything in return. Grace leaves the results up to God. When you give that money, it's right. It's right. Let me edit what I said before. It's right when we're giving money to people in need to figure out how we can best meet their real need. Throwing money at situations doesn't usually fix the problem, but getting involved with them and showing them how to use the money properly is really what we need to do. But sometimes we're just called to give. And you know what? They may use that money differently than we would expect. But guess what? It's not a gift if you're the one telling them how to use it, is it? Grace gives and leaves the results up to God. Grace leaves the what people deserve up to God, not to you and to me. Grace leaves the thanks for your good works up to God. He's the one that we aim to please in what we do. In your job, you have an employer, but you do your work as unto the Lord, right? To the glory of God. That's how we do it. Grace welcomes us to the table, even though we've done nothing to earn a place there. In our sin, we're the ones that say, like the duck and the cat and the dog, we say, not I. Not I. We say this to God's requirements, really, almost every single day. But we're also quick to jump in and say, I will at his offers, right? When the bread is baked and it smells good and there's something nice happening, we say, oh, I want to be a part of this. It's grace that reserves a place at the table for people that don't deserve it. And it says, come on in. There's room for one more. That's the beauty of grace. That's why it cannot be earned. Praise God, His grace is like this. We've mentioned it before. I I teach this to our kids regularly. If if it were up to us to earn God's favor, none of us would make it. We said that a couple weeks ago. We would be doomed if it was up to us. Praise God, it's not up to us. He's given His Son. He's given us grace. As we allow the Lord to till up this fallow ground of our hearts, I pray that we would resist the ways of the Pharisees and instead see ourselves for who we really are, but more importantly, to see Jesus for who he really is. He is that good, brothers and sisters. He is that faithful. He is that kind. And so the danger, the trap, that the Pharisees fell into is, I'll say it again, that their head and their mouth were disconnected from their heart. It was prophesied this way of Israel long ago. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So the question that I want us to reflect on today as we sing our last song together is, am I a practicing Pharisee? is what I say I believe when I come in here on a Sunday morning, I claim something. I sing these songs. I go to this class. I, in, in, I'm part of worship. I'm claiming something here. Is, 
my weekly behavior lining up with what I'm claiming here? If it's not, brothers and sisters, it may be time for spring cleaning. It may be time to let the acts of the gospel whack at the roots of sin in our life. Get those roots out. To have that disc of the grace of God plow up our hard hearts. So as we move into next week, beginning in chapter 23, these woes to the Pharisees, my hope is that we wouldn't read these disconnected from what it says. Because it'd be easy to do that. We could come in and read chapter 23 and say, man, those guys were horrible. I'm glad I'm not like that. And then move on with our lives. And we will have missed the point. As we go into chapter 23, it's my prayer and hope that we would evaluate how God is speaking through this text to me, to you. I don't expect this. I'll just be real honest. I don't expect this to be a real pleasant process because nobody likes to spring clean. But this is not a pleasant process, and yet it is a necessary one. So I want to pray as we finish this portion of our service. I want to pray and ask God to use his word and his spirit to till up our hardened hearts. Would you pray with me? Lord, we like, we like what we like. Anything outside of that is a threat to our happiness. And yet, Lord, you coming in and cleaning house is necessary for us to take the next step in our walk with you. Lord, come in and overturn the tables of pride. Kick out lust and anger. Lord, drag these things out of our hearts. The dark places that we have put things, that I have put things in my heart. Lord, drag them out into the light so that they can be judged rightly and dealt with accordingly. Lord God, and so often we are Pharisees, but that's not our desire. Lord, I think most people in this room want to honor you in their lives, want to follow you without hypocrisy. And while that may not be fully possible here on this earth with sin so easily entangling us, Lord, it very definitely can be improved on as we surrender more and more to the rule of Christ in our hearts. So Lord, remove me from the throne. Remove my brothers and sisters from the throne of their own lives so that you increase and we decrease. Lord, thank you for grace. Despite the hard things that you say and will say to us, Lord, we thank you that there is nothing that separates us from the love that is in Christ Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that we would find it today, grow in it today in his name.